We're going to be in Hebrews chapter 12 again this morning. We started this wonderful chapter last week, and we're going to continue in it. We'll start at verse 4 of Hebrews 12 here in a few moments. Uh, but I wanted to uh, say, as usual, a thank you to you as individuals or couples or families. If, if you give of the funds the Lord has given to you, if you give into our common fund as a church, I want to say thank you to you for your generosity on furthering the mission of people like the Cones in Cameroon, furthering the development of people like Adam and Claire as we think long-term even in our community here and being able to fund staff members like Ben coming and uh, the, the gifts that you give into the church enable much to happen uh, here in our community around the world and want to say thank you uh, and encourage you to continue to give uh, sacrificially as the Lord uh, blesses you. May you continue to give and may we continue to give uh, abundantly to, to further that ministry here and around the world. Uh, we come to a text, it, this could easily be a Father's Day text. Father's Day is a week from today, so you got a seven-day heads up. Uh, if your dad's still alive, uh, you can do something nice for him uh, for next Sunday. So you were not, uh, you are warned, so you know in advance, including my kids, you can do something nice for me <laughs> next Sunday. Uh, but uh, in, our, in God's providence today, as we're going through Hebrews, uh, we come to a, a text that could easily be a Father's Day sermon, if you want to think of it that way. It's a text that clearly speaks about earthly fathers and about our heavenly fathers uh, and the things that are similar but also different between the two of them. Uh, and so uh, we will take a Sunday out of Hebrews uh, next Sunday to address fathers and our relationship with them, how to see even fatherly figures in the church, things like that. Uh, but uh, this text is fitting for us to go through as well. Uh, ben, you know me well enough, I think, that you know I quote Charles Spurgeon a lot. Uh, I, it's not just because we have an Englishman with us today. I quote him most Sundays. So I wanted to get a Spurgeon quote out of the way right at the beginning. And I don't think I have any more. Uh, but he said this, just in his typical way, speaking of fathers, he said, There are those who spoil their children. God is not one of them. That's what he said. There are those who spoil their children. But God is not one of them. And what he is getting at is that uh, parents or fathers in particular, sometimes we can fall victim to the temptation to spoil our kids, to want to never see harm come to them, never bring discipline to them, to just let them indulge and, and receive all that they want, shield them from any uh, difficulty for them. But what he was trying to point out in a very simple way is our Heavenly Father is not like that. Uh, we may think that he is. That may be our assumptions individually or culturally, but Contrary to popular opinion today, uh, as God brings children into his family, he doesn't just bring sheer delight and ease and prosperity. Uh, he often brings, and sometimes for long seasons, brings painful things into our life, brings things to teach us, difficult, hard, heavy things uh, for us who are the followers of his son, those of us who've been now intertwined with Father, Son, and Spirit. But that can be a confusing experience for us, can't it? Especially if we have assumptions of our Heavenly Father of what He should be like toward us. And then He doesn't act that way. He, he doesn't spoil us. He does bring hardship and discipline to us. That can mess with us, so to speak. It can make it hard for us to relate to Him. What do we do with that? When we are told this God deeply loves us, we know and believe He deeply loves us. Yet he brings us affliction, sometimes long-lasting affliction in our life. And that's what this text today, Hebrews 12, 4 through 11, speaks to. That's the question. That's the experience we have in our life as Christians that this text speaks to. It helps children of God understand our Heavenly Father's purposes in affliction and hardship that he may bring into our lives and to learn to endure it. 
Not that we fully understand it or know everything that he's up to, but this text calls us to endure it, uh, this discipline from our Heavenly Father. So I'm going to read this here in just a moment, but I know not all of you have been with us in Hebrews. Uh, If you've been with us every Sunday, I know you hear this every Sunday, but just to frame the context of this letter. This was a letter written in the early days of the church, uh, after Jesus had ascended to heaven by who? We don't know. Uh, Some unknown author is writing to this group of early Jewish Christians, uh, men and women who'd grown up ethnically Jewish, but who'd heard of the Messiah, Jesus, and they believed that Jesus was him, that he really had died, that he had been raised, that he had ascended to the the right hand of the Father, and they had started following Jesus, but we pieced together from this letter that they'd started to experience opposition for that. They had started to experience embarrassment or mistreatment uh, because of their faith in Jesus. And what this letter again and again is calling them to do is to press on in faith, to keep running that race like we saw last week. Run the race of faith. Don't shrink back from it. Don't think that the way out uh, is healthier for you, to avoid pain, to avoid difficulty. That is not a healthier path. And so in Hebrews 11, he, get, he walked us through and walked these readers through these Old Testament saints, Jewish men and women who uh, in years, generations upon generations gone by, followed the Lord in obedience, even through difficulty, even through hardship. They pressed on in faith. And last Sunday, we saw at the start of chapter 12, he used this metaphor of a race. And he said, we have all these witnesses who've run before us, and they witness to us by their example that we should keep running as well. Run to the end in faith. And so he's going to pick up here in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 4, having just talked about Jesus himself as the exemplar of faith, the one who endured hostility against himself. And he's, he's told them, consider him, verse 3, so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted yourselves. And this is how he continues, uh, because he knows the temptation that they faced and that we will face. He knows that temptation to believe that when we're afflicted, When hardship comes to us, he knows that temptation that we're going to think God's either angry at me or that he's absent from me. And he's wanting to correct that kindly but clearly, to correct that false assumption. So hear how he continues. This author, who we know not, uh, continues under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, writing this, starting in verse 4. In your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. And have you forgotten the exhortation that addresses you as sons? My son, do not regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. For the Lord disciplines the one he loves and chastises every son whom he receives. It is for discipline that you have to endure. God is treating you as sons. For what son is there whom his father does not discipline? If you're left without discipline, in which all have participated, then you are illegitimate children and not sons. Besides this, we have had earthly fathers who disciplined us, and we respected them. Shall we not much more be subject to the Father of spirits and live? For they disciplined us for a short time, as it seemed best to them, but he disciplines us for our good, that we may share his holiness For the moment, all discipline seems painful rather than pleasant. But later, it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness to those who have been trained by it. This is the word of the Lord. May God bless the preaching of his word. I want to summarize the message of this text this way, uh, and then I'll have three points. But the, the summary of this text, I would say this way, very simply, is to embrace affliction as the discipline of a loving father. 
If you're a Christian in the room, if you're a follower of Jesus, I think this text would call you to this, to embrace affliction in your life as the discipline of a loving father. Now, there's a lot in that that I want to try to unfold from this text. I don't want us to walk away with wrong assumptions. I, I want to speak as clearly as I can from this text. But this has hard things, but helpful things uh, for us to hear as followers of Jesus. And so I want to acknowledge up front, this is a weighty subject, uh, how we think about suffering and affliction and the discipline of the Lord in our life. I, I'm guessing for some of you, this is going to be a challenging message, a challenging text. But I pray that for all of us who are followers of Jesus, that it's going to be ultimately a consoling message. Not just a challenging one, but a consoling one uh, for all of us who have God as our Heavenly Father. And so I'm going to have three points to try to unfold what I think this author is saying. And there's going to be two always statements and one never statement. So two always statements and one never statement as we think about the discipline of our Heavenly Father toward us who are His children. So the first point is going to be this is that his discipline is always loving. The the Heavenly Father, if we're his children, his discipline of us is always loving. Verse 4 kind of starts, and we're kind of starting in an arbitrary place, but our text today starts in a unique way. Probably not a way I think most of us, if we were writing this, would have started. When he says, in your struggle against sin, you have not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. It's kind of like, if I was going to put this in a, a simple kind of uh, terse way, it's like he starts by saying, things could be worse. Like, things could get worse for you. Like, people who've had horrible things happen to them and then started to have very real difficulties that are tempting them to abandon their faith. He's like, you haven't shed your blood yet. Like, these people died. Christ himself died. But many other brothers and sisters have died for their faith. And that's how he starts. And I think that's instructive to us. Uh, this author, it's not that he lacks compassion for them, right? I think he's demonstrated throughout this letter this compassion for them and the difficulties that they're walking through, their weariness, their faint-heartedness. He just addressed in verse 3. But he reminds them, you haven't yet reached the pinnacle of suffering. Like things could get worse. They may get worse for you. In your life, and I so appreciate that because what he is doing is he's resisting the temptation we have sometimes when somebody's going through affliction to just tell them, Oh, things will get better. Right? That's how we, that's sometimes how we start is we promise people things that's not ours to promise. Like we, we want to console them by saying, Oh, like surely you've seen the worst, surely you've gone as low as you can go. Uh, surely you, the, your suffering has reached its zenith and it couldn't get worse, right? This author tells him it could. Like it could get worse. So he's not trying to console them with these simple platitudes and promises that aren't really his to give. And we shouldn't do that with sufferers either. Just assure them that things are going to get better for them. But what he does want to console them with is not that things are going to get better He knows they may get worse. What he does want to console them with is their status as beloved children of God. That's where he goes. He wants them to know if you are united with Jesus, you are, as we were seeing, a beloved son or treasured daughter of our heavenly father, even in the midst of your affliction. 
That does not change. When affliction rises, your status as his beloved son or daughter does not change. And so he quotes for them uh, from Proverbs 3. Yours probably has verses 5 and 6 kind of set aside or indented. What he's doing there, he's quoting from Proverbs chapter 3. And he's, he's telling these readers, and the Spirit would tell us, that uh, that text was not just King Solomon to his sons, like that's what it was first. But that text by its nature of being part of the Bible is God's word to his sons. God's word to his children. And there's a powerful message there in Proverbs chapter 3 verse 11, 12 that he doesn't want them to miss. He wants them to see. So he quotes this to them and says, this, hear this text. It addresses you as sons. Not just as subjects or some distant person, but it addresses you as sons of God, as children of God. And what I want to point out to you first for this first point is what he says. So he says, My son, don't regard lightly the discipline of the Lord, nor be weary when reproved by him. Those are these twin temptations. We're either going to think, oh, it's no big deal, like this is just accidental or no purpose to it, or we're going to be crushed by it and just think, God, I cannot make it through this. God is either crushing me or he's absent. But he turns around, this is what I want you to see, verse 6. And this is where I think the author would point their attention. He says, for the Lord disciplines who? The one he loves. He disciplines the one he loves. That is where he wants their eyes to zero in on, their ears to, to perk up at, as the Lord disciplines a particular group of people. It's not just all people in general. It's the people he loves. It's the, the people that he has set his love on. And he's wanting them to know, if you're a follower of Jesus, you're part of that category. That is why you are being disciplined. That's why hardship is coming to you. It's not just random. It's not just accidental. You are being disciplined because God loves you. That, that is why these things are happening to you. And we are tempted, I think, when we go through suffering and, and affliction. I can be this way, and I, I trust that you can probably relate to this. When we're going through affliction and difficulty, the way we're tempted to view our relationship with God is first not to see ourselves as child and him as father. But we, we're tempted to use metaphors like maybe like a military thing. Like I'm a, a soldier who's been like thrown out on the front lines, like a chess piece, on a, like a pawn on a chessboard by some cold commander like who doesn't really care about me. And he's just stuck me out there and he has all these big purposes in mind, but he doesn't care about me. I'm just a, a cog in the wheel. And he's just calculating, kind of using me as a pawn. That can be a way that the enemy would tempt us to think of ourselves. Or we could think of ourselves and God less as son and father, daughter and father, but as a subject and king. Like that, that God is just this cold king kind of sitting on his throne and I'm down here and he either is ignorant of my plight, he's either ignorant of what's going on in my life, or worse yet, we think that he's numb to it. That he just doesn't care. Like we're just one of the masses and, and God's either oblivious or he's numb to my affliction. That's how we're tempted, I think. That's how I think they would have been tempted to view their affliction and the pains that were coming into their life. But he wants them to not just be guided by what they think is true, but to be guided by what God tells us is true, what is actually true in their life. And what he wants them to know is that when you have affliction come into your life, it is because God is treating you as a beloved son or daughter. It's because of his love. And that flies in the face of how we understand our suffering. One other temptation I would note as an aside that we face is when we have affliction come into our life is we're tempted to think of God as somehow detached from it. 
Like that there's just other people hurting me and that God has nothing to do with it. Like that, that we can just think this is a sheerly human thing, an accidental thing, or just a, a me and you thing. But I would point out in this text the active verbs used for God, right? He, he, God is not detached from our affliction and suffering. And I know this gets into weighty waters that we can't fully jump into. But he calls discipline in this quotation from Proverbs 3, he calls it the discipline of the Lord, Right? not just the affliction of fellow human beings. He says he calls it the discipline of the Lord. He says, when reproved by him, talking about God, right? And then he, in verse 6, he says, the Lord active disciplines and chastises. Like our affliction, God is not absent from it. God is not just kind of wishing it couldn't be and has no say in it and no control. He is in some sense... There's depths of here that we can't probe, but he is bringing that affliction to us. Like he, he is doing something in it. He's not just passively watching it happen. And more than that, he is actually demonstrating his love. He's showing his love in the bringing of that affliction. And this is so hard for us to embrace. This is so hard for us to see. And I'm, I'm in the ranks of those that find this hard experientially to believe. And the trust is true. Because how could it be loving? Like how could it be loving of God to allow affliction into our life, things that paralyze us, that strike fear in us? How could that be loving? Like what good could these things possibly bring about? And we'll talk about that toward the end of the text and toward the end of the sermon. But, but I want to acknowledge, because I know sometimes there may be skeptics among us or you may be ministering to people who are skeptical of this. It is not lost on me when we read a text like this. And we say, God disciplines you. He brings affliction. But you need to see him as loving and good. That can, when people hear that, they can start to think of, I was, I was thinking of this term uh, that I've learned in, in recent years uh, that some of you are familiar with. There's a term called the Stockholm Syndrome. Some of you know this. It's like when people have abused someone, like they've harmed them, they've afflicted great pain upon them. There's something that happens psychologically in us where we can start to make excuses for them or we can start to like paint them in a positive light to other people where we start to have this unusual love for them that's very confusing to other people. And what some people think when they hear texts like this and they say, God afflicts, but you need to see him as good and loving. They think this is like a baptized version of Stockholm Syndrome. Like you're saying, like God brings harm, but you need to defend him and show uh, respect and love to him. And I can understand why people may think that if we did not have the cross of Jesus. Like if we did not have the cross of Jesus, if I did not have that to look to and you did not have that to look to, I could understand people's argument. That we're saying a sovereign God brings hardship to you, but you need to see him as good and loving toward you. I would say, yeah, right. Like that's hard for me to believe. But we have the cross to look to. Because the, and why I say that is because this is a, a text I think Ben even referenced and I, I seek to reference a lot. It'll be up on the screen. But Romans 5, 8 in that letter, the Apostle Paul said this. He said, and hear the active nature of this. God shows his love for us and that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. So God's love for us, his love for our children, is not just some idea we're called to believe. 
right? In some abstract way, just purely take him at his word, although we should, if that's what he was calling us to do. But he has shown us his love. He has demonstrated it to us, right? And the way he, the place he demonstrated that most clearly, once and for all, is not in the circumstances of our life, right? But is in the cross of Jesus. That's where you can see undeniably, unquestionably, God's love for sinners like me and you. Because there, God didn't have to do this. But God on his own will, the the Trinity together, working together, they had determined and set into motion this plan to send God the Son, who became Jesus Christ, into the world as a human being. He was innocent. He deserved no affliction, no judgment, no pain, no hardship from God. But at the cross, he took the sins of people like us upon himself, and God the Father crushed him in our place. That is a demonstration of love that is unmatched in any human relationship. Think of the most loving thing anyone has ever done for you, and that does not hold a candle to what happened at the cross, of God demonstrating his love so much for you, his desire so much to see you reconciled himself that he would crush his true son, his beloved son, upon the cross. God has demonstrated his love for us. We can look to the cross to see that, not at the circumstances of our life, But we can look to the cross of Jesus and see that. And we must, if we're a follower of Jesus, we must learn to differentiate in our affliction between what seems true and what is true. Sometimes those are the same. Often they are not. What seems true and what is true can be very different. When we're being afflicted, when we have hardship come to us, what seems like it's true is that God is absent or God is angry at me. But what is true is that God still loves me the same today in my affliction as he did on my highest of highs. Like when I was on the mountain peak, God loves me the same up here as he does down here. Like my circumstances do not determine his love. He loves me the same. And so when we are going through afflictions ourselves or when we have brothers and sisters who are going through afflictions and we face that temptation to view God as devoid of love, as as being absent or angry, we are called by this text to see the Lord disciplines the one he loves. The reason you're going through this is because God does love you. Not because he doesn't. It's because he does. And so that's the first point, that God's discipline is always loving. And we'll we'll keep exploring this a bit more. The second uh, point is the never statement. And then we'll get a third. That's another always but if we're from this text called to see that God's discipline is always loving, the, the never statement that I think we see here is that God's discipline is never punitive. Like when there's affliction that comes to you, when there's hardship that comes in your life, if you are a follower of Jesus, that discipline of God in bringing that to you is not punitive. Or like the kids, you can think that has to do with punishment. God is not punishing someone by bringing affliction to them if they're united with Jesus. But often in our lives, and maybe you can relate to this, uh, we tend to flatten together the categories of discipline and punishment. Like we almost use those like they're the same word, like that they're the same idea. Discipline, punishment, discipline, punishment. But they are not interchangeable words. They are not interchangeable categories. Uh, when, when we think of our earthly fathers, if the Lord uh, allowed you to have your father in your life, if you're like me, we tend to think, if I've done something wrong, think like when you're a young kid, I've done something wrong, we tend to think dad's going, if he finds out, dad's going to punish me. 
right? Like, uh, and what we mean by that is I did something wrong, and what I'm going to get back is like payback for that thing, right? Like I did this, and so the consequence for that is this payback, this, this pain that I feel as a consequence of that thing. We don't think of it as positive discipline, right, to grow us and shape us. We just think of it as I did this, so I get this back. That's how we think of things, right, with our, with our earthly parents, like a consequence. And we can do that with God the Father as well, I think. When, when we think that we've done something wrong, uh, we, we, let me say it this way. Like, we may grant that God loves me. Like, we may agree that, say, yeah, your first point, God's always loving. But when affliction comes, we can hold this weird tension in our mind where we think, yeah, he fully loves me, but he's angry at me too. Like, and he's paying me back for some wrong that I've done. Like, that this pain that is coming to me is payback from God. And we, we hold this weird tension in our minds and hearts of God's love and God's anger, of God's love for me and his punishment of me. And that's how we think God operates. And so rather than seeing affliction and pain as something to grow us, we see it as something to punish us, some way for God to pay us back for wrong that we have done. But what I would want to point us to is the very end of the quotation from Proverbs 3, where he says, so the Lord disciplines the one he loves, but don't skip the next line. He says, and chastises every son whom he receives that's a beautiful word like that he receives right that, that's not accidental right we as human beings are not naturally God's children we're his creatures like we, we were created by him but we do not belong to him just on our own as sons and daughters for us to become his sons and daughters he had to receive us right like he had to adopt us into his family, bring us into his family, because we, me included, deserve his punishment, right? We do deserve that. We deserve to be separated from him. We deserve God's judgment for our sin. But if he receives us, how did he receive us? Like what had to happen for him to receive us as sons and daughters? What had to happen for him to receive us sinners as sons and daughters was the cross, right? If we were going to be sons and daughters, we had to have our sin dealt with. We had to have our sin removed from our record, dealt with once and for all. And what the author of Hebrews has done again and again and again in this letter, lest we forget, is he has tried to tell them the sacrifice of Jesus worked. Like it, he actually did atone for your sin. Like when he went to the cross, hear this if you are a Christian, when Jesus went to the cross, every sin of yours was laid upon him. Every single one. Even ones you don't even know about. Even ones you don't even realize and need, that you even need to repent of. All of your sins were laid upon Christ. And all of your sins were punished by the Father. There at Calvary. Every single one. What that means then is if you trust in that sacrifice, you trust in the person who was sacrificed for you, your record is now clean with God in a judgment sense, right? Like there is no more anger of God for your sin to be given out, right? Every punishment has already been laid down. 
that the eternal consequence that should come down upon you and me has already fully come down upon Christ. So what that means in your real life now, if you're a follower of Jesus, is this idea of payback, consequence, like I did something wrong and God's mad at me, so now he's going to punish me. That is not reality. That is not true. If God brings suffering, if he brings affliction, he may be doing a lot of things that I don't even fully realize, but one thing he is surely not doing is punishing you for your sins because he's already punished Christ. He is not punishing you. He is not condemning you. He's not bringing pain upon you as payback for sin that you have committed. And if you are someone in the room who has never placed your trust in Christ, I want you to hear this invitation from this text that God is willing to receive you. Right? You may fear that, that God is going to pay you back or that he's paying you back for your sin. You know deeply your sin against him. You know you deserve his anger. What I want you to know is God is willing to receive you once and for all, even today. Like because, not because you're good, not because you're cleaning up your act, not because you'll never do wrong again, but because he has already laid down his son as a sacrifice for your sin. And if you call out to him for forgiveness, he will grant it to you. He will receive you today. And you need not fear the rest of your life or for all eternity the anger of God, the punishment of God, because it was laid down upon Christ in your place at the cross. If you are a fellow Christian in the room, I want you to hear from this text that, that when affliction comes, God is not punishing you. We are tempted to believe that. We, I, I try when I discipline my children at times, especially as they were younger, if there's particularly hard situations, I'd recommend this to any parent in the room. I try to make a point to tell them very explicitly, and they may find this hard to believe, but I say, I'm not angry at you. I, I've said that many times. I am not angry at you. Like even as I bring consequences, I bring something that stings. Like I am not doing this out of anger. Like I am not doing this just to punish you. I'm doing this because I love you. And that is what the Heavenly Father would want through this text to tell us. We must rid ourselves, I would say as Christians, of this poisonous idea that we have this cruel Heavenly Father who is just meeting out punishment to us. That is not the message of the good news of Jesus. Yes, God has anger toward our sin, but that anger was laid upon Christ. It is not laid upon us when we are afflicted, when we have pain come into our life. And if we forget this, this idea that his discipline is never punitive, we're going to be tempted to two things, I think, as Christians. We are going to be tempted if we think of this idea like he's paying me back. This is hard, hard things he's given me back for the sins that I've committed. What we are going to try to do first is we're going to try to appease God, right? We're going to try to just maintain our good behavior, our godliness, so that he doesn't pay me back. Like, so that he doesn't bring affliction. Like, I don't like affliction, and I think affliction is payback for sin, so of course, I'm just going to try to stop sinning, not because I want to honor God, or because I want to represent him well, but because I don't want affliction, right? And that is not why we're called to obey. Like, we are not called to appease God. God has already been appeased, right, by the sacrifice of his son. That is not how we're to relate to him, trying to appease him, but the, th the second thing I think we'll be tempted to if we forget this, that his discipline is never punitive, is that if at first we're tempted to appease God, 
The second thing, we're going to be tempted to overanalyze ourselves, right? Like we're going to go on this hunt. I used to do this. Like I would go on this hunt constantly if there was some hard thing in my life, some painful thing in my life because I thought of this whole like God's paying me back. God, this is a, a punishment for something in my life. I would go on this hunt in my life and in my heart of what am I doing wrong? Like, what, what is the cause of this thing? Because I want to get rid of this cause. Like, I, 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 I want to uh, get rid of this thing. God, show me what it is so I can get rid of it. Like, so we can get this discipline done. But that is not always what God is doing in discipline. Sometimes it is. Sometimes there's a sin that he's trying to show us or teach us about. But sometimes it's not. As we're going to see, sometimes it's to just grow godliness in us or to be a witness to other people. But if we think all that is happening in affliction is God punishing me, then we're going to be looking sometimes for sin that's not even there. Like we're going to be trying to hunt down this thing that's in my life that I need to purge, and that's going to be like the key that unlocks health and peace and prosperity for me. And that is a dangerous game to play. That is not how God operates. Like he is not some genie that you just manipulate and you find the things that he likes and you do the things he likes and now he just gives you abundant blessings. That is not how God works. His discipline, the affliction he brings in your life is not punitive. The third point, last point from this text would be this, and it comes from the paragraph from verses 7 through 11, is that God's discipline is always constructive for Christians. It, that it's, or you could think of it as it's always creative. It's producing something, right? It's not just wasted. It's not just for no reason. There, there's something that God is doing. He's constructing. He's developing in his children when he brings affliction, when he brings discipline into our life. And if you followed along in verses 7 through 11, you saw the author was drawing these strong parallels between earthly fathers and the heavenly father. Right? He, he was pointing to our experience that we had, whether in the ancient world or modern world, of what our earthly fathers are like and things we know about them, experience from them. And then he's saying things that are even truer about our Heavenly Father. And a lot of it has to do with the purpose of the discipline, the purpose of the, the pain that is brought to us. Right? So let me just show you a couple of things briefly in this text. If you start in verses 7 to 8, this paragraph, uh, what he's doing there is he's pointing out just some simple observations of our earthly fathers, like ways that they have dealt with us, right? He's saying fathers typically discipline their children. That's part of what fathers do. Uh, they, they discipline their children, right? Uh, he says rhetorically in verse 7, what son is there whom his father doesn't discipline? Like he just says that's part of life. As fathers, we're called to discipline our children. And what he says in verse 8 then, the flip side of that, if you don't experience discipline, from this person, are you really their child? Like, are you, are, you, are you maybe some sort of just hired hand or some sort of friend of a friend or something that is kind of around? Like, when my kids have friends over, I don't discipline those other kids, right? They're around, like they're in our house, but I don't discipline those kids. I, I would not do that because they're not my children. Like, but when discipline does come, it's a sign that you are under the authority and love of that father, that earthly father right? That's how things should happen. The fathers bring discipline. But then in verse 9, he, he starts to make this comparison between earthly fathers and the heavenly father more explicit, right? Did you notice the language in verse 9? He talks about earthly fathers, like we've had earthly fathers who disciplined us. We respected them. 
He says, shall we not much more be subject to that? This is a, seems like a weird statement. The father of spirits and live. I think it's just a contrast of earth and spirit, like flesh and spirit. Like, hey, we see this, how our earthly dads relate to us. Like, it's pointing to even truer things about our spiritual father, about our heavenly father, right? And what he says about our earthly fathers uh, is that we have learned to respect them. Oftentimes we struggle to respect our dads, and I am not standing up for every one of your dads. I don't know most of your dads. But often what typically happens is we grow older, we respect them more, right? Like as we look back upon their life and how they treat us, we learn to respect them more. Things we didn't fully get when we were a kid. Maybe we couldn't have got when we were a kid. We see more fully. As we get older, we've learned to respect them. And he's saying, how much more should that be true with our Heavenly Father? Are there not things that we think we are going to learn about him and how he's dealt with us, right? As we grow in maturity that we start to realize, oh, I get more now in hindsight what you are doing. Some of that may come in glory. Some of it will come in this life, though. But we learn to respect our earthly fathers. We should learn much more, he says, to respond to our heavenly father with submission. But as you get to verse 10, this is what I want to zero in on. You start to see some of the purpose or the aim of discipline both from earthly fathers and our heavenly father, right? Our earthly fathers, he says, verse 10, he says, they disciplined us for a short time as it seemed best to them, right? As it seemed best to them, I think does a lot of lifting there, right? Like that, it's implying that dads, ideally, typically, they're trying to bring something about, right? And they're disciplined. They sometimes do it poor ways. Uh, but they are trying to do something. They're trying to bring about something in the way that they discipline their children. I, I want to just acknowledge, I know of some of the painful realities of some of your fathers in the room. I know there are many I don't. But what I, I would want you to see from this text is not to make excuses for them, but to, to see the contrast between the earthly father and the heavenly father. Us earthly dads do what seems best to us. And sometimes that involves great harm and damage to people. But your heavenly father, one thing I can tell you with certainty is he does things for your good. Like he does not manipulate you. He does not harm you for no reason. He doesn't harm you just to get things for himself. He does it for your good. I can tell you that with certainty that God, your heavenly father, does that. We earthly fathers fail. Uh, we, we make mistakes. We sin against our children at times, but our heavenly father does not. But even earthly fathers typically are trying to bring about something good. Right? But what he says about our heavenly father at the end of verse 10 is he does discipline for our good. Always. Like he disciplines for our good. Earthly fathers try to do that. The Heavenly Father does do that. And the reason he does it, the, the good that is brought about, the righteousness that's brought about that he talks about in verse 11, the holiness that is talked about in verse 10, he is trying to do, he's trying to sanctify us in bringing affliction. He's trying to, to make us more like himself. We're trying to share in his holiness, become more and more like him. And pain is sometimes part of that process, right? We don't like that, but pain is part of that process of growing in godliness. This is constructive language here, right? He disciplines for our good. He disciplines that we may share in his holiness. He later comes the peaceful fruit of righteousness by the, to those who've been trained by it, right? There's good that is supposed to come from this. And affliction and pain 
can be and often are part of God's curriculum and his training for us as his children, right? This word you see over and over and over again in this passage, discipline, has a, a broader meaning than just how we think of discipline, like a, a spanking or a consequence. Like what it has to do with is this broad training of a child, like teaching of them, even instilling virtue and values in them. Painful things help do that, right? That they can help grow these things in us. And do we not, even in our own parental, uh, our own parenting, uh, as fathers, as mothers, do we not do this? Like, we sometimes let our children experience painful things, right, to try to grow them, right? We don't just shield them from every hard thing that is ever going to come to them, right? We let them sometimes have a surgery if they need a surgery. Or we're not afraid of scrapes they may get by falling off their bike so that they learn to ride on their bike right? Like we let them face fears that terrify them, not, and we don't just alleviate it in the moment to appease them. We want them to press through that painful fear to learn the positive ability to do something, right? And God the Father is no different as he parents us. There is good that he can bring about and that he seeks to bring about through our pain, through our affliction. Just a few things to mention of ways he can grow us. If he brings affliction into our life, is, is it not a way that we can be reminded of our own weakness and our dependence upon him in ways that we wouldn't if that pain never came? Like if just ease always comes to us and uh, health and prosperity comes to us, would we not just become prideful and self-sufficient? But when affliction comes, we remember our weakness. We remember our dependence upon him. I have seen this true in my life. Does affliction not, does this painful discipline sometimes that comes to us not grow us in a spirit of prayer? I think if, if you're like me, I pray so much less in times of ease than I do in times of affliction, right? And God in a kindness, if we become detached relationally from him, sometimes brings affliction to us so that we cry out to him again in ways that we would not. We've proven again and again we don't cry out to him in the same way in times of ease. Affliction, I think, discipline can sometimes reveal idols in our hearts that we didn't know were there. And I don't want you going on a hunt to try to find these, but I think you know what I mean. When affliction comes, maybe health is removed from you, and you realize all of a sudden how much you've idolized health, right? Or a relationship is, is ripped from you, and you realize how much you've idolized that person in time with them, that they've become your God. They've become the one that you love above all. Sometimes affliction exposes idols in our hearts. Affliction, another fruit I think that it can bring in our life is that it increases our longing for the world to come, doesn't it? Would we have this, would you have the same longing for heaven and for the new earth if this felt like heaven and earth, or heaven on earth all the time to you? I would not. I've lived through that. My anticipation of heaven, my longing for it grows when affliction increases. Right? And I, I think the same is probably true in your life. And the sorrow and affliction that God brings into our life, it doesn't automatically grow us. Affliction and sorrow come to unbelievers, right? And it doesn't grow these things in them. But the, the key for us as Christians is that the Spirit of God takes these afflictions and He uses them for good. Like He uses them to grow us in holiness, to grow us in godliness, to bring about this peaceful fruit of righteousness. But I want you to hear one thing from this paragraph in verse 11. I just want to acknowledge that God's discipline and his affliction that he brings to us 
can be very slow and painful at times. But that is part of how God has created this world. That's part of how he has set a scene fit to grow us is that slowness is part of the process, right? Like we want quick fixes. We want quick release from difficulty and pains in our life. That's what seems like it would be best for us. But he said, he uses a metaphor of farming in verse 11, like that later it yields the peaceful fruit of righteousness, that when you plant seeds in the ground, those things don't grow overnight, right? Sometimes affliction has to stay upon us. And that's a, a mystery of God I don't fully understand, but it's part of reality is that sometimes he leaves us in affliction to slowly grow things in us, right? I, as a child, when I was disciplined, it's not like I would get one spanking and learn my lesson and never do that again, right? There, there was pain and difficulty that was lovingly brought to me to slowly teach me as I grew toward maturity to grow in godliness. And the same is true of God. His discipline is not efficient, I would say, but it is effective. Like he's not trying to hurry things along and that, that's frustrating to us, but his discipline is always effective, Right? Like it stings now, it sanctifies later. It's not always just boom, boom. And we always want, I think uh, we want, like the recipients of this letter, we want to short circuit this process, right? We want to just get it over with. Let's, let's get the, the painful things out, God, and let's just move on. But I appreciate an illustration I heard uh, from C.S. Lewis this week, who many of you know and respect. He was using the analogy of a surgeon, and he in his day, I think they had some anesthetics. I praise God for anesthesia that we don't have to experience the pains of surgery. But he was talking about if a surgeon who truly loves you. And imagine pre-anesthesia days. A surgeon who truly loves you is going to have to cut you, right? And that thing is going to hurt like you cannot even comprehend. And you may scream for him to stop. Like, you may be trying to hit him. Like, you may have to be restrained. You're going to be begging him, stop, stop, stop. But what the, the metaphor or the illustration he was trying to use was that that loving surgeon will not listen to your cries for him to stop until the job is done, right? And if he did, like if he stopped when you asked him to stop, all that pain you had already experienced would be wasted, Right? Like you would have had that for no reason. And these recipients of this letter, and we can be the same. It's like when we have felt pain from God's hand, we felt affliction come, it's like, God, stop, stop, stop. Like this has to be enough. Like stop doing this. There's sometimes still yet things that God is trying to grow in us or that he's trying to do in this affliction. And we must in that moment learn to trust him. Learn to trust his heart. Not that we have to delight in the pain. Say like, hallelujah, like keep it going. But we have to trust him that he knows what he's doing, that he is pressing me not just towards randomness, but he's pressing me to godliness, and pain is part of it. And we don't have to understand how all the dots connect. We don't have to understand all the things he's up to, but we can look to the cross of Jesus and know he loves me, right? And know he is for me, that he is with me. I turned 40 this week, uh, on Saturday, I think, I turned 40, so I've been doing a lot of reflection on my life and probably will do more. Uh, but I think one of the things, and I'm even going to get to see my dad today, hopefully, Lord willing, uh, but one of the things I just have appreciated reflection is looking back on my own parents 
and, and thinking of, man, we went through some hard things, uh, things I didn't fully understand what they were up to at the time, but things I'm thankful that they did, <laughs> ways they were firm with me or hard on me. Uh, and I am grateful to God uh, that I have a loving Father on this earth who's an image to me of my Heavenly Father, who didn't spoil me, like who didn't spare me from discipline, but who brought it to me to teach me, to teach me to grow. And I wanted to end by uh, referencing, I, a few weeks ago, I referenced the sermon Jonathan Edwards delivered uh, long ago called Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. Some of you remember this? Maybe. I sometimes don't remember my sermon from that day, let alone weeks ago. Uh, but I referenced that sermon, that famous sermon, Sinners in the Hands of an Angry God. And I, I titled today's sermon, I, I want to leave you with this, reality that if you are a child of God, if you've placed your trust in Christ and been united with him, you are not a sinner in the hands of an angry God when you suffer. Like you are a son or a daughter in the hands of a loving father. Right? That is who you are. And your afflictions may scream otherwise, but the cross speaks loudly and clearly to you that you are a son in the hands of a loving father. And he loves you too much to spare you of discipline, right? He loves you enough to bring the hardship, to bring the affliction, to grow you into godliness. But hear this, he loves you. He is for you, he is with you.